Kelly Hoffman. Hi. Thank you so much for talking to us today. We really appreciate it. I, uh, first, b- before we get into your brilliant career and everything you've kind of achieved over the last few decades, I want to just go back to a 16 and a half year old Kelly Hoppin and just say to her, just to let you know, in a few decades time, you're going to have this global brand. Your name is going to be a verb. How do you think you would have reacted to, to that? I think I would have had less pain, actually, because I had no self-esteem at that age because I was so badly bullied at school. But I think that kind of gave me the strength to kind of do what I did. And I think in a way that gave me the sort of tenacity and I had to believe in myself. And I think that's something that I've always held on to and I try and teach when I mentor people, that if no one else will believe in you unless you believe in yourself. So... I look back now, and I have lots of youngsters working here, and I think 16 and a half, where did that come from? And I think if I pinpointed it, it was I hated school so much, I would literally rather be thrown in with the lions and try and and deal with that than go back into education, because I loathed it, being dyslexic and everything else. No, absolutely, and one of the things doing the research that came up quite a lot was how competitive you are. Do you think at that age you were that competitive or do you think that kind of grew uh, as you got a little bit older? Uh, I suppose, yeah, I suppose I, I, it's not being competitive. I think I would say I don't like to fail and failure is not an option. Is that being competitive? Maybe it is. I don't know. I'm not somebody that kind of goes up against people because I actually have a really nice nature underneath, you know, this kind of stern business woman but I don't like to fail. Any entrepreneur will know if you fail, it doesn't matter because you've already got another idea. And I think that's also something I try and teach young people is it don't hold on to something so much that if it doesn't work, you'll never move forward, you know? So yeah, maybe I'm competitive, but in a good way. Could we just have a bit of a timeline? I know it's difficult over all these brilliant years, but could you just give us a kind of summary of your career to date? God. Well, I mean, when I was that young, I was kind of just dabbling in it. And then I was very lucky that my stepfather had a friend that wanted a kitchen doing. I mean, how he ever like thought I could do it, I don't know. And I didn't actually. It was a complete mess, but I managed it. And then a girlfriend of mine was having an affair with a famous racing driver. And I suddenly became the interior designer of this house as a kind of front to their affair. And that really was the beginning of my business because you do one job well, you do, you get it, and you're on a kind of like track of getting, so it was all racing drivers, actors, and people like that. Got a studio, um, the age of 23, shut my business down to have a baby, took a year off, literally how you do that now. I literally just shut the door and that was it but I wanted to get back to work a year later. Um, And I did my work around my daughter and her school. And, you know, I was always there for her with her upbringing. And the business just got bigger and bigger, but then it suddenly became a bit like a brand because brands were approaching me to do licensing deals. And I had been really kind of obsessed with Martha Stewart and had read everything and watched everything about her and that whole licensing world. And my mother had also um, been involved in that world. So she had taught me a lot. So from interior designer, suddenly it became a brand. Then Terence Conran approached me to do a book, which was amazing. Then I won uh, a big award. The FT did a big piece, Lucia van der Post. And once you got that piece, you were kind of set. 
And I think once I won the Andrew Martin Award and the first book came out, I had the confidence that I didn't have to prove anything. And I think that's a really big moment in business when you don't have to prove something and you just enjoy the moment and what you're doing, that's when your business takes off. I know this is a little bit of a hypothetical, but obviously when, when you first started the business, it was before the age of social media yeah. and Google and all that kind of stuff. Do you think you'd still be able to have the same level of success if you started the business today? Do you know, if I was to take over the world for, for 24 hours, I would shut everything down because I think people need to really understand what it is to go and find creativity and use your imagination. You're right, I would look at magazines and go to libraries and I would get in my little beaten up old car and drive to go and find the fabric and stuff. And my style came from my traveling and my imagination, whereas today you go on Pinterest and social media and Google and you can copy it. So I think, I wouldn't change the clock. I like the way my business grew organically and I still feel it grows organically today. I think now, today, everything's so instant and I'm not sure that you, I would have had the same life and the enjoyment that I got out of it. I think if you're good enough, you can be very successful very quickly today. But I think there's also a massive amount of competition. And I think one of the things that I... I'm so glad I didn't have was to see what everyone else was doing because I was just following my own destiny and my own path. Today, there's so many things, you know, and I remember over the years being asked, what other great designers do you admire? And I'm like, I don't know, because I was in my own little bubble. And I think my world and my business grew out of that kind of bubble in a way. So it was very different and I'm learning with AI and every, I mean, it's just like, you know, it's, it's crazy what's going on out there. One of the things, again, kind of reading up about you, in a couple of places you mentioned that when you were younger, you were quite shy. Um, and, you know, when you think of how big a role networking played in your journey, w was there a little bit of kind of pushing your comfort zone um, by going to those networking events and meeting people and being a little bit more outspoken than maybe yeah. you would have by nature. I mean, I think my ex-husband, Ed, was really good for me in that he was like my partner and my t part of the team. And so um, I would host these events and I would be really nervous, but he would be there with me and I would invite everybody and anybody and say, come with a business card, which was quite forward thinking in those days because people weren't really like that. And I was like, you cannot leave without exchanging something because something will come out of it. And they became quite, um, there was a Cameron PR, was an amazing PR company. And I worked with Judy Tobias, who I'm still friends with. And we kind of started this networking thing and it kind of took off. And then people respected you for sharing. And to grow anything in life, doesn't matter what it is, you have to share. If you give, you get back. And that was kind of part of my sort of um, theory. And then I worked with a, a life coach in New York who explained to me that if you run a business and your name is at the top, everybody underneath has to feel like it's their business. And if you share every piece of knowledge you have, hence why I started writing books, your business will become bigger and everybody under you will have more power. 
And his name was David Zellman. And I had one session with him that somebody gave me in a corner office in New York. And it was like that kind of moment, like, whoa, this is a corner office in New York. And I came away thinking like, sky's the limit. I can just keep on going because I thought I had reached that point and he showed me I hadn't even started. So it was all those kind of little lessons that I just fell into rather than looking for them. Yeah, no, absolutely. And you kind of mentioned the, the kind of corporate or the, the business structure that you have. And obviously, you know, when you started, it was just yourself kind of building your way yeah. up. And, but how did you find kind of developing that leadership style? I don't know. Somebody asked me the other day, like, at what point did it get bigger? And I really had to rewind in my sort of filing cabinet as to when it was. And it was first working at home and then somebody came to me, a young girl called Melanie Rademacher, who still has a company today. And she said, I want to work for you. You don't have to pay me. I just want to work for you. And she stayed with me for nearly nine odd years. She was amazing. But from there, I got a studio. And from the studio, I started to employ people. And it's, it's one of those things in business. When you look back, there isn't a day when it changed. It was a period of time. It suddenly grew and grew until you looked around and thought, we can't fit in here anymore. And it, you're not aware of it, um, but every level of your business has to change, the accounting, the, the, all the structures. But I still believe today, maybe stupidly, that it's still a very small business. And that is how I make it work in my own mind, if that makes sense, because I'm not into having in a corporate environment. It's a proper working artist studio. And it has to remain that way. Obviously, you've, things have changed and there are a lot of employees, but I still try and think of it as a kind of small business and it works for me that way. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, you're, you're obviously a global business too. And, you know, you, you've said many times that you love traveling and that's where a lot of your inspiration comes from. But on, on your travels and, and dealing with various suppliers and things around the world, has, has there anything kind of really stuck out about different cultures? And was there anything that kind of sticks in your mind that goes, I wish we did that more in the UK? Any particular practice or, or attitude? The thing is, I, because the world has become smaller, I think you, you find less things to discover. And what I've always loved about travel was that you would travel to New York and you'd go to a diner because you hadn't been to one in London or you'd find that gray t-shirt that you just knew was kind of New York and you'd come back to London and go, oh my God, where did you get it? You know, or you'd go to China or to Asia and, and the food and the, the, their manners and the way they, you know, and I love the fact that every country, now you still have that, but it's less. And um, so I think in a way, every culture should own what it has. And I think we are very British. We have a lot of heritage um, and that's who we are. And I think if we changed and became like another country, then it becomes less exciting. When we look at this business, um, as we mentioned, you know, even though you say it's small, it's, it's a, it's a well-known global brand. Um, but one of the interesting things is that, you know, you've not taken any external funding. Um, how important do you think it has been for your journey to, to really experience that, that organic growth when we're in an age of, you know, fundraising and that's, you know, whatever is on Crunchbase or, you know, is, is, is out there in the, in the zeitgeist about how much money you've raised being what you kind of pin your hopes on, if that makes sense. Do you know, yeah. it just never, ever occurred to me. 
I'm a grafter. I get up every day at 5.40, have my black coffee, and I'm in the gym. That's my moment, and I come to work. People, honestly, in a million interviews will say, oh, God, you still go to work? I'm like, yeah. <laughs> like, it's, it's my life. I love it. It never, ever occurred to me to go and ask somebody for money. I just worked to make money. You know, maybe going down the line, you know, soon I might look to sell some of the business 100%, but that's 46 years later. It just never even occurred to me. I, I wanted to own it 100%. And, you know, when obviously your, your, your name is the brand, and when we look at other kind of similar businesses that have been built in the same way, thinking Joe Malone, thinking Liz Earl, they have both, for example, sold their businesses, but they're still out there and kind of using the name. Is that, is that maybe a part of why you didn't end up doing it is because you are so closely entwined with the, with the business, do you think? I mean, look, I've built a brand. You know, for me, my name and the Kelly at home and Kel, and who, whatever I'm called, that's me and that's my life. And the business is a brand. So I think it's very different. So if somebody bought the company, I would never, I wouldn't want to walk away from it. I'd still work in it or buy a percentage of the business, but that's a business name. You're still part of that. And, you know, Jo Malone successfully sold her business and she now has something else that she's doing, but she's still Jo Malone. Um, you know, what's interesting is there's been a couple of great, amazing designers like Christian Liag, Zaha Hadid, David Collins, all who have sadly died, but their businesses still carry on. So this whole kind of thing about, oh, it's your name, and it's, I don't think that exists anymore. You know, kind of moving on a little bit in your journey, we come to the Dragon's Den years. Was investing something that you did beforehand? Was that something or was the Dragon's Den call just out of the blue and you were just like, this is a great opportunity? Well, two answers to that. Yes, I did invest in small businesses. Uh, Dragon's Den definitely came out of the blue and I was like, yeah, great. And then I was like, ah, what am I doing? Um, even till like the night before. And I remember Duncan ringing me up and just saying, you'll be fine. It's fine. You know, it's not live and all the rest of it. I sort of wish I could do it now rather than then. I almost feel like I was almost too green behind the ears to do it. I loved it um, and I loved all the dragons, and, but it was, I hadn't factored in that it wasn't just the 21 days of filming. Once you invested in something, you had to run those businesses because my thing was I wanted to invest in young entrepreneurs, which I did, but they needed a lot of time. So I had to employ more people and it was taking up too much of my time, actually, which is sad because I really enjoyed it and I still watch it and I watch Shark Tank in America. Um, it's brilliant. I think it's a great, great show. Yeah, no, definitely. And, you know, like you mentioned, mentorship is something that's so important on the show, but also something that's so important to you. Why do you feel that, you know, mentorship is so important in business to, to yourself? I don't know. Maybe because I started so young and I have such a big following on social media. And I think a lot of it, my realization came after COVID because, you know, we all were hit by this crazy, you know, few years. And I just started talking on social media and started to sort of gain a wider audience because I was just talking to people because we were all like so scared about what was happening. And it was after COVID when I would walk down the street, when I go to airports, I swear not, people stopped me every day saying, if it wasn't for you and what you were saying and teaching and talking, I wouldn't have got through it. And I realized that it's such a powerful tool 
And I'm one of those people that sort of doesn't really quite understand social media, probably because I'm old, where someone will come up to you and go, oh, I'm so-and-so, I follow, and I suddenly realize they do. And then you realize you have this bigger audience. Do you know what I mean? I know that sounds crazy, but you look at an iPhone and you just think, oh, it's social media, but you're not realizing you're hundreds of thousands of people. So I think that um, more so now, I, the mentorship and teaching and doing all of that, I think it's really important because people are struggling big time. Did you have any kind of figures growing up that really instilled that, you know, you know kind of pay it forward type uh, situation that you have with mentorship? Um, my mum uh, was my biggest critique. She was the most honest. She still is. Um, so I could always go to her. She was, she was always very solid. You know, I was very lucky and a lot of young people don't have that. Um, so I guess she was really, because my dad died when I was really young. So she was very uh, good like that. And I had a lot of her friends that were also, you know, in different industries and stuff. So I would always attach myself to them and learn. I was like a sponge, always asking questions. And outside of your complete passion for interior design, do you think if we took away the interior design part of things, would what do you think you would have done? Advertising. Advertising. <laughs> 100%. I'm obsessed with advertising. When I used to see those incredible, like, just one word, or I mean, look at Barbie. I mean, how clever. You would just have like a billboard that was pink with some tiny little thing on it and you'd know what it was. I, I've always been slightly obsessed with advertising and I think had I not done interior design, I would have been quite good at that, like coming up with concepts. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, kind of doing the research and watching the shows that you've been on and things like that and talking about hearing you talk about your creative process it's so interesting as far as the you know the, the the music that you kind of channel while you're doing this and you know you you've mentioned that you are very dyslexic too um when you kind of reflect on on that and kind of how people are talking more about dyslexia and you know the kind of the power of neurodivergence do you kind of feel like things have changed for the better hell of a lot yeah i mean when i first started talking about it um I, I actually, I was actually given an award. It's outside for being dyslexic. I mean, how crazy is that? And I had to go to an award ceremony and the other people accepting awards was Charles Dunstan, Carphone Warehouse. There was Richard Young, the photographer, uh, Richard Branson, you know, like in good company. And it was just such an odd evening. And I remember Charles got up and said, that whenever he used to write car phone warehouse, it used to come out as crap phone warehouse. <laughs> and it so resonated with me that thank God we had spell check, you know. <laughs> but yeah, like I would do a lot with people about dyslexia and charities. I'm doing something I think in a couple of weeks with somebody else uh, that came through the dragons because I want to tell kids when they're growing up, it's not a disability. Actually, you have a superpower that other people don't. So if you can't add up and you can't spell, there are, there's calculators and there's spell check. We have a part of the brain. If you gave me a sheet of paper and said, memorize that, we're gonna film you, I would start to sweat, literally, and go into fear mode. If you showed me a story board of the whole thing, like that. And I only discovered that I had dyslexia when my daughter, and I went to do the test with her, so I went through the whole of my childhood living in fear that I was just stupid. 
So actually you can use that creative side of the brain in a way. And when you have to memorize something, you have to create a story around a sentence. So there are ways that you can do that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And we'll just switch gears a little bit and kind of talk about uh, a little bit more uh, wider uh, reaching things such as supply chain issues. You know, there's a lot of, of businesses that are really being affected yeah. by it, especially with, you know, Ukraine and the, the Russian situation going on. How has your kind of business been affected by, by those? I mean, look, everything is taking longer. You know, Brexit hasn't helped. There are some companies that will not supply. So if you take, you know, our business, say we're building a 50,000 square foot house in Hong Kong or Miami to get things from A to B and the price increases and the lack of stock. I mean, who would have known that one day when you went to buy a sofa, someone could take you, tell you it would take six months. And that is a, you know, a small price to pay in the, the world and the crisis of what we're going through. But in terms of my business, it has definitely affected us. But you factor it in and you find other avenues. And I'm one for always looking to find, if that doesn't work and you've got a dead end, there's gotta be another road somewhere because there's always somebody that's using that opportunity to create something. And I think I've always said on some of my talks, it's like there is an opportunity here for young, new business, new entrepreneurs to take over some of this production line. Um, and I'd like to be producing more in Great Britain. You know, I'm a great advocate for the great campaign. And, you know, we just sold our soul. Everything went overseas. We have to be more in control of what we do here. Yeah, no, definitely. And when you kind of reflect on, on your career with the business, you know, if you turn on the news now, it's very doom and gloom. Um, but where, where are we on the, on the fact, uh, you know, how serious is it compared to other times that you've been through crises in, in the kind of history of your, of your business? Look, I think, you know, I've lived through a global, global recession before, and I think that was very frightening when you suddenly hear the word global. Whereas if you're in a recession in your country and another country isn't, you can always tap into that and weave through and make it work. We survived our previous global recession and we will survive this. Inflation will come down. We will, it will plateau out. Everyone said after Brexit, give it eight years. You know, like we didn't factor in COVID, which has probably been like the worst thing I've lived through. Um, but everything always does work itself out. Unfortunately, the cost of living for people, that is where the problem is. When you're divide from the rich to middle to poor, the bigger those divides are, the bigger the problem is. So we have to try and make that work better. Um, and, you know, coming back again to, to the investment side of things, you know, are you still actively investing in businesses? Is that something that you're still going or not? No, only because I haven't had time. I have been flat out, literally, over the last few years. First of all, with COVID, we never shut the business. We continued to work. We never went into savings, we got paid for jobs, I kept the business running. How, I don't know. That, you know, if, if anything, that's what I should have got a staff for because that was hard. Um, protected all my staff, um, you know, from day one. And it was trying to then build the business back up to where it was before COVID, which we're at. And now it's like taking it to the next level. 
So it's, it's hard work, you know, running a team, designing, doing the business, bringing the work in, keeping clients happy and having a life. It's, you know, my other half will say it's more about work and less than that. So I'm trying to find that balance now. It's now time for the good news postcard from the Jill Dando News Center. Uh, so Kelly, as I've mentioned, uh, we get incredible questions from students and your one today is from uh, Hayden, age 10. Hello, my name is Hayden from the newspaper center at Castlebatch Primary School Academy. I'd like to ask you the question, if you went down a different business career, what would it be and why? Wow, okay, so if I hadn't become an interior designer, the only other thing that I think I could have been any good at, and most importantly would have wanted to do, would have gone into advertising, because I have a creative mind and I like the idea of being given something that makes you want to buy it, because I love shopping. So advertising is about showing something to go and look at something, to go and buy something, to be um, enthralled by something. So you know when you're driving down the motorway and you see big billboards and you see an advert for something, that's the kind of thing that I would have got into, but it would still be using my creative brain, but in a slightly different way. That is a great answer to a great question. Thank you very much, Kelly. So last few questions we have for you. Um, we are obviously business leader. So what to you makes a great business leader? I think making a good business leader is one, like I said before, letting your team feel like they are their own umbrella under your umbrella. I think that if you make people feel inadequate in a business, that they will not produce. So it has to be teamwork. I think getting older, I've become wiser. And I have a saying in my company, count to 10 before you answer. And that is because we all shoot from the hip so quickly. And if there's a crisis or something happens or whatever, I always say, if somebody hasn't died, let's just sit quietly and count to 10. There is always a solution for everything. So I think as a leader, you, you know, I walk in every day to my studio and go up to every single person and say, good morning. And I am upbeat. And that will be the energy of the room for the day. If I walk in with a long face and not even speak to anyone, the energy dives. So leader means you are leading people. So you have to feel like, how would you want to be led? How do you want to? So it's really quite simple. I'm sure other people have given you far more strategical answers, but for me, it's about waking up and finding that peace and that balance and putting that into your workplace and making each and every one person feel important. Because I've seen it when a client walks in, a really important client that's well known, and they will walk in and go and say hello to every single person in my company. It goes a long way. Mm -hmm. That's a brilliant answer. I love that completely. And this one's a little bit of a tougher question for you. Um, what is one fact about you that people can't find online? That I like to get to the airport about three hours before a flight. <laughs> <laughs> The amount of traveling you do, that makes complete sense, yeah. No, it's because I'm terrified of flying. So I feel like if I'm prepared, I don't want the extra anxiety. And my partner, I love him so much because he's somebody that before he met me would literally arrive and get on a plane. And he has just accepted the fact, 
we get there hours before. At least he has. Yeah, that's yeah. it. Um, again, thank you so much for your time, Kelly. Really appreciate it. Do you have any kind of final words for our audience today? I just think, you know, one of the things for me is I wouldn't be sitting here now doing this if I didn't love what I do. And I think you have to find your passion in, in at least half of what you do. And I believe that if you look deep enough, you'll be able to love everything that you do. And if you love what you do, you'll do it a lot better and the people around you will do it a lot better. So find the passion.